This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Kyle. And I'm Emily. And this is the week of February 22 through 26. And this week, we have executive producer Mike Richards stepping in as guest host. His opening spiel on Monday and um, some some chatter among fans and contestants all lead us to believe that this was not really planned. It was kind of a, a last minute substitution having to do with COVID and travel and not having another guest host available or able to able to make it to filming. Um, so he stepped in because the show must go on. And I, I think he did a very capable job. So on Monday, February 22, we have the contestants, David Mayberry, a magnetics engineer originally from Richmond, Virginia, Natalie Tyson, an academic advisor from Walnut Creek, California, and Sam Stapleton a college consultant from Los Gatos, California, whose one-day cash winnings totaled $33,201. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, The Celeb Chef Won't Eat That, Pre-Columbian America, What Are We Doing, Political Slang, There's a Book in My Movie, and Crossword Clues, T. T in quotation marks. The What Are We Doing category... Brings us back to what we've talked about before of like knowing bodies of water, right? Mm-hmm. Know your bodies of water. Bering Strait was the $200 clue. Hopefully, you know that's between the US and Russia. Uh, Lake Superior was the $400 clue. And then the the $1,000 clue was Lakes Maggiore and Garda. Empty into tributaries of this 400 mile long Italian river. Uh, that was a triple stumper. That's the Po. The Po recently came up, I think, or maybe the Arno. Italian rivers, for some reason, seem to be a favorite of Jeopardy recently. So mm-hmm. there are basically three, right? You have the Po, the Arno, and the Tiber. Right. And remember where those are. The Po is up north. Yes. And I think it's the longest. Uh, the contestants were all, I think, a little shy of the pre-Columbian America category, but pretty predictably for a Jeopardy round category this was not really heavy lifting um and the clues were about pre-columbian america but most of the responses you didn't really need to have studied pre-columbian america extensively to get them right there was um a picture of ancient cliff dwellings in bandelier national monument asking about a rock formed of ash from these. Um, so that was volcanoes. Um, you did actually have to know your pre-Columbian civilizations a tad at the $400 level, asking about which people uh, spoke the language Nahuatl. Um, those are the Aztec. Made me think of Anarchy. Uh, right. who Yes. And... Um, a picture of a mask asking about what stone it was made from that was basically identified jade was the you know was the was the question there um yep 
what got planted with beans and squash uh, <laughs> was at the $800 level. And that, that's corn. Um, and uh, at the $1,000 level, relatives of mammoths. Uh, that was a mastodon, you know, so like, these are not like, you, they're not really asking detailed questions about pre-Columbian civilizations. Right. Uh, we get the first daily double at pick number four. It's in the political slang category at the $800 level. Sam finds it. He's at 600. Natalie has not gotten in yet. And David is also at 600. He wagers a thousand. It gets the clue. Astroturfing describes artificial attempts to create the appearance of this two-word kind of political campaigning. And he gets it right with what is grassroots. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was nice to see him work that out. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Sam is at 6,200, David is at 6,400, and Natalie is at 4,000. And they get the double Jeopardy categories throwing the book at you. Historic seconds. P for science, P in quotation marks. Hamburgers, Animals Within Words, and Paging Dr. TV. And uh, Natalie starts out at the hamburgers category. She says, like, gotta go with hamburgers for 400. Uh, It turns out this category is about people from Hamburg. (laughs) Yes. uh, Which would be hamburgers, but not actually hamburgers. Mm -hmm. Uh, So she does get that clue. It's born in Hamburg. H.A. and Margaret Ray are best known for a series of kids' books about this monkey. And she gets that with who is Curious George. Then she moves away from that category, because mm-hmm. I think it ended up being not what she thought it was going to be. Yeah. She goes over to the paging, paging Dr. TV. There was kind of a mislead at the $1,200 level of that category. Um, a few parallels with this title doc and Sherlock Holmes. Both had the address 221B and played musical instruments. David kind of fell for... I'm not sure if it's exactly an egg bit, but he rang in with who is Dr. Watson... If you're if you just key on key on on uh, this doctor and Sherlock Holmes, then it's like of right. course it's Doctor Watson. Um, but they were looking for Doctor House, Doctor Gregory House, who yes. um, is uh, you know being sort of subtly connected with with Sherlock Holmes through those clues. Daily Double number two comes up at the $2,000 level of historic seconds as the 20th pick. So we're pretty far into the round. Sam finds this one as well. And he has 11,800 at this point to Natalie's 6,400 and David's 14,800. So he wagers 3,000 looking to get into a tie for the lead and gets the clue Tragically, in 1881, shortly after taking office, he became the second president to be assassinated. Knowing the presidents who um, were assassinated or died in office is um, a pretty good trivia thing to memorize. There aren't that many of them. And Sam knew it. It's Garfield. Yeah, to me, that was not a $2,000 clue. Agreed. To me, the whole that whole category was not a double jeopardy category. Mm-hmm. If that was the hardest one, like, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. but it worked out for Sam. So yeah. And then daily double number three is pick number twenty-seven. It's the twelve hundred dollar clue in animals within words. So this is another another category where you had to scan the clue to find the answer. David finds this one. He's in the lead at eighteen thousand four hundred. Sam is at fifteen thousand two hundred. Natalie's at 5,200, and he makes a big bet. He bets 10,000. I think that was a good bet. Mm-hmm. 
there were only three clues left. You get it right, you're kind of locking up the game for you. Basically, it's not a lockout, but it was okay. I might have actually gone a little bit more to try and get a lock, but... Yeah. Uh, the clue is, after sighting one of these horned animals in Africa, we busted out a magnum of champagne. And David is not able to find the answer in there, but it, they were looking for new GNU in mm-hmm. magnum. Yes. So that drops him down, and there's only three left on the board. We had a triple stumper at the $1,600 level of that same category. Sam got the 2000 The clue there was a set of bejeweled ceramic sheep may include these two animals, a female and a male. And he got U and Ram. There's a U, E, W, E in bejeweled and Ram in ceramic. That brings him up some. And then there's a triple stumper on the last clue, the $2,000 level of paging Dr. TV. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, David missing that daily double and then Sam getting that $2,000 clue um, means that Sam has a lock with 17200 David's at 8400 Natalie's at 5200 And we have the final Jeopardy category, music. And the clue, just 24 notes. This piece is named Butterfield's Lullaby for the U.S. Army General who arranged it. We've talked about this piece a little bit before on the podcast, I think, mm-hmm. way back when. So Natalie wagers... 3201, she's trying to get above David, um, and correctly responds, what is taps? But David's wagered 2001, um, and also has, what is taps? Sam has wagered 100, (laughs) um, uh, not risking his lock, and responds, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me no more. Um, (laughs) Funny guy. Yes. I I appreciate a joke answer when the stakes are low. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Sam is our winner going into Tuesday. And on Tuesday, we have the contestants Francis Krieg, an assistant controller from Pacifica, California. Aaron Craig, a business litigation attorney originally from Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And Sam Stapleton, a college consultant from Los Gatos, California, who is now up to $50,301. The Jeopardy round categories are Roman times, airlines and other words, TV show quotes, four letters, three syllables, the legend of baggy pants, and swords. The $200 level of Roman times touches on a pet peeve of mine. Um, The clue there is, in Roman legions, mutiny might be punished with decimation, where this percent of the troops were killed by fellow soldiers. Um, Francis got that one. It is 10%. Mm -hmm. The word decimate people often use synonymously with like obliterate right they you know it get, it gets used as um to mean to destroy until nothing is left decimate is uh wiping out 10 percent. it's like randomly killing 10 percent of the troops is like that's scary that's a mm-hmm. the romans the romans were harsh it's it's harsh um but it's it it, it doesn't mean to to wipe out Right. Daily double number one comes up in airlines in other words. We actually had a we had a triple stumper there at the two hundred dollar level. Uh, the clue was alluvial plane, and the correct response there was delta. Nobody guessed, but I think that kind of that first one kind of clued them into how the category worked, and they they did fine mm-hmm. with the rest of it. 
And then at the 19th pick at the $800 level, Francis found the daily double. At that point, she had 3600 to Sam's 2200 and Aaron's 4200 and she wagered 2000 and got the clue 225 degrees on a compass and correctly responded, what is Southwest? Nice job mm-hmm. there. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Francis has taken the lead with 5800 Aaron's at 4800 Sam will go first uh, with 4000 And we have the double Jeopardy round categories Guitar goddesses, African countries, museum must-sees, Duncan, physics, and S-words. S-words. S in quotation marks. Saber. Mm-hmm. It starts with a bloody S. <laughs> oh, goodness. I feel like there was a lot that connected to previous deep dives in this round. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had um, at the $2,000 level of physics, uh, C can stand for this unit of charge named for French physicist Charles. Uh, nobody guessed that one. It was Coulomb. And Kyle, you talked about that when we were when you were doing like... Um, SI units. SI units, yes. Yep. I think I mentioned Guernica in at least one deep dive. Mm-hmm. That was in the museum must-sees at the $1,600 level. At the Queen Sophia National Museum in Madrid, this 25 and a half foot long black and white painting depicting the tragedies of war. Mm -hmm. And a couple of my deep dives came up in the Duncan category, the $400 level. Mm -hmm. Duncan is Malcolm's father in this Shakespeare play. Um, We talked about Macbeth a while back, like about a year ago. And uh, in the African countries category at the $400 level the Nairobi Animal Orphanage is in this country and they had a, a picture of cute baby wild animals but uh, yeah yeah, I did a, a deep dive about colonial Kenya a while back that was a that was a fun one yeah. didn't especially talk about the Nairobi Animal Orphanage but certainly if you uh, <laughs> if, you've, if you've heard somebody talk about Nairobi enough you'll remember what country it's in hopefully yeah yeah they did well with the African countries category. They did. Yeah. Nice work, contestants. Yeah, they even started in that category and uh, found Daily Double number two at the third pick in the round at the $2,000 level. Sam found it. Uh, he was at 6800 Aaron was at 4800 and Francis was at 5800 He wagered 4000 He got the clue there, the two countries highlighted here, and of course they show a map. Insert two letters into the name of one to get the other. And of course, this is not Niger and Nigeria, but it is Mali and Malawi. Mm Mm-hmm. But he got that right. Yes. And Daily Double number three comes up as the 28th pick, so almost at the end of the round, um, in the physics category at the $1,600 level. Sam finds this one and wagers 2,000 of his 21,200. Aaron has 11,200 and Francis has 11,000. So Sam is trying to take this to a lock game. He gets the clue. Around 1800, William Herschel found that this type of radiation he called radiant heat is closely related to visible light. Um, He guessed what is magnetic radiation, but the correct response here is infrared. So he drops down to still a substantial lead, but 
he doesn't get that lock game he was hoping for. Right. And the round finishes. So he is at 19,200. Aaron is at 11,200. And Francis is at 11,000. And the final Jeopardy category is movie directors and the clue. Along with his writing partner, this director is the only person to win screenwriting Oscars for both a film and its sequel. Francis wagered 10,900 and wrote, who is Mike Nichols? That is incorrect. Uh, So she drops down to 100. Aaron wagered 10,827. Not sure about the number. And wrote, who is Francis Ford Coppola? Which is correct. So he moves up. And Sam wagered 3201, which would be a cover bet. uh, But he was incorrect with who is Tarantino. Mm -hmm. And Mike Richards informs us that Mario Puzo won for, along with him, for The Godfather Part 1 and Part 2. Yeah. So um, that missed last Daily Double, I think, really... Uh, really did mm-hmm. Sam in here. Yep. That's the game. Yeah, sure is. Um, so Aaron is back with us on Wednesday when we have the contestants Ken Shen, an astrophysicist from San Francisco, California. Andrew Vaughn, a PhD student from Moraga, California. And Aaron Craig, a business litigation attorney originally from Toronto, Ontario, Canada, whose one-day cash winnings total $22,027. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, Buy Me, Subpoenas, Cracker Jacks, Cities of the Midwest, Double Vowel Words, and Let's Talk Plumbing. This was a good competitive game throughout yes yeah i appreciated the the let's talk plumbing category um i I like whenever jeopardy does kind of like uh very practical home improvement or like cleaning or like car maintenance kinds of categories right things you wouldn't necessarily consider like uh academic right not neither academic nor like pop culture like you know celebrities and and movies and whatnot because you know there's a lot of there's a lot of things in the world to know about I, I did appreciate that not once during that plumbing category did i feel the need to swear so mm. <laughs> that's, that's a first for me when dealing with plumbing yes <laughs> yeah Ugh, getting angry it, just thinking about it mm-hmm. all right daily double number one is in the cities of the midwest category it's at the $600 level. Aaron finds this one. He is up at 3600 Andrew is in the red at negative 200 and Ken's at 3200 He wagers 2000 and he gets a clue. This home city to Kansas State University shares its name with a Big Apple Borough. And that, which Aaron gets correct, is Manhattan. Manhattan, Kansas. Mm-hmm. I have been to Manhattan, Kansas. I spent a few days there at K-State. It was, I don't think I'm going to offend anybody by saying this, not as exciting as New York's Manhattan. Mm, I don't think that's a controversial opinion. No, but it was nice. Yeah. It was a nice little town. Yeah, nice. At the end of the Jeopardy round, Aaron is up to 9,800. Andrew is at 2,400 and Ken is at 4,800. So Andrew got out of the red. Um, And we get the double Jeopardy categories, Horse and Writer. 
paintings, soldiering on, movies, a system of graft, and TNT. Each response starts and ends with T and has an N somewhere in the middle. And by the middle, they mean anywhere between the T and the N. (laughs) Uh, Because the $400 clue is adjective for air that moves suddenly and violently. And that's turbulent. Mm -hmm. And that N is as far to the right as it can be, still between the T's. Yep. And uh, the $1,200 clue, nobody got... Uh, a friend and collaborator collaborator of Louis Armstrong, Jack Teagarden, had this musical job. Nobody knew that that was a trombonist. Mm-hmm. How does how do we not know Jack Teagarden? I mean, come on, Pit. No, that's understandable. Yeah, I didn't think of it in time, but yeah, I mean, hard to think of another musical job that starts with T and ends with T and has an N in the middle. It's like Trump trumpeter. <laughs> Yeah, but also you'd probably be thinking about, like, oh, uh, like, where do I even start with this? Right. right. Yeah, that's fair. I don't blame people for not knowing Jack Teagarden. Mm-hmm. Didn't quite have the lasting power that Louis did, so. Yeah. And had some had some uh, real highbrow art at the $400 level of paintings. Um, Cassius Coolidge did a whole series of paintings of dogs playing this card game, some commissioned to advertise cigars. Um, that's dogs playing poker. We had a quiz question about that, and then we got a dog's playing poker print for our home office. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. But (laughs) sort of funny to have that, like, side by side with Vermeer. Um, Anyway. Right. Yeah. This is about poker. Totally kind of off topic. But it is a trivia thing. Online poker is, like, pretty much illegal in the United States now. Mm -hmm. Like, gambling for money is pretty much illegal. Uh, And that is associated with Black Friday, or at least that's what it's called. It was Black Friday. It was April 15th, 2011, but it was called Black Friday. So if there's ever a trivia question about, like, the day that online poker was shut down, it's called Black Friday. I recently learned that. I thought that was interesting. Hmm. That is interesting. Yeah. Uh, Daily Double number two is at the $2,000 level of that paintings category. It's the fifth pick, and Andrew finds it, and wagers 2,500 of his 6,000. Aaron has 11,400 at this point, and Ken has 4,800. So if he's correct, he'll move into second place. A true daily double would have given him the lead, um, but it is at the $2,000 level, and maybe he doesn't care much for the category or just you know wants to wants to play it a little more conservative and try and make up ground in the rest of the round Mm -hmm. he gets the clue he depicted the horrors of war and the execution of his fellow spaniards by napoleon's troops in the third of may 1808 and andrew knows that one it is goya yes goya also painted that well-known painting of saturn devouring his children If you know that one. Yeah. Yeah. That's also a good one. And Daily Double number three is in the horse and writer category at the $1,600 level. Ken finds it. He's at $7,200 behind Aaron's $13,400 and Andrew's $10,900. And uh, he wagers $3,700, which would get him up to an even uh, $11,000 ahead of Andrew. And the clue is, soon after his death in 1910... 
tourists began visiting his Yasnaya Polyana estate, where they saw his dog Belka and his horse Delir. And Ken gets it correct with who is Tolstoy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, his initial hesitancy about the category turned out to be okay for him. Yeah. Yeah. So at the end of the double jeopardy round, Ken's in the lead with 18,500. Aaron's at 17,400 and Andrew is at 14,500. These are very good scores. Extremely Um, good scores. (laughs) Yeah. We have the final Jeopardy category, business history. And the clue, David McConnell's Cosmetics and Perfume Company was rebranded in 1939 with this name, honoring the home of his favorite playwright. I sort of got a kick out of seeing this come up as a final Jeopardy clue on a day that there happened to be three male contestants so yeah, uh who presumably have not dealt with this mm-hmm. so andrew has wagered five thousand and correctly responds what is avon aaron has wagered eleven thousand eight hundred twenty seven which is probably too much in this position, I think. Right? No, maybe not. He does need to get above 29,000. So, all right. Yeah, no, so that's fine. Um, and he also correctly responds, what is Avon? Ken has made a cover bet with 16,301. He guesses what is Mac, also a cosmetics company. Uh, but he, I think, knows it is not correct and has a frowny face mm-hmm. there. So he drops down and Aaron is our winner. Yep. Yeah. I didn't know that Avon got its name from Stratford upon Avon. Yeah, I didn't either. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Uh, so on Thursday, we have the contestants Michael Colton, a screenwriter originally from Newton, Massachusetts. Marissa Blackburn, a senior staffing services associate originally from Short Hills, New Jersey. Say that five times fast. And Aaron Craig, a business litigation attorney originally from Toronto, Ontario, Canada, whose two-day cash winnings now total $51,254. And the Jeopardy round categories are musical idioms to my ears. First names the same. Round the world with round in quotation marks. Businesses. Shedding light. And on the subject, we had Joan of Arc yes. at the $400 level of yes, on the subject. Yes, sure did. Made uh, of Orléans. Yes. That's uh, it's gratifying <laughs> to be like, we talked about that, and we talked about that, and we talked about that. Yes, it is. Yeah. The $1,000 level of musical idioms to my ears has never made sense to me. The clue is, to make yourself look good, sometimes you have to do this sound a brass instrument with a flared bell and that's toot your own horn yeah as a as a music teacher you should only toot your own horn mm-hmm. you should not toot someone you, else's horn no especially without permission but even with permission you you could catch diseases or mm. if you don't know how to play it you could break it yeah only toot your own horn don't let somebody who's else toot around, your horn. Yeah, who's going around telling people to toot other people's horns? <laughs> it's an important question. If I find out who it is, yeah, I will be impotently angry. 
Mm-hmm. At the $200 level of shedding light, we had chemist Georges Claude passed electricity through inert gases to create this type of lighting and used it in signs. And the correct response there was neon. We had a whole category about neon when we played Jeopardy. So, mm-hmm. yeah. I, I got in on the clue in our game about what color neon mm-hmm. glows. And I rang in and said red, and I have no idea how or when that got in my head. And if you had asked me before our game whether I knew what color neon glowed, I would have told you I did not. Um, mm-hmm. So something about being on that stage, like like half of your knowledge trickles out of your brain, but through your ears, but also it's like sometimes you just access things that you're like, I did not know that I had ever encountered that piece of information before. Oh, yeah. It's it's like super, like, hyper-focused. Mm-hmm. Extremely in the zone. Yeah. Uh, shedding light is where we find Daily Double number one at the $1,000 level as the 27th pick. Aaron finds that one and wagers 1,000 of his 6,800. Uh, Marissa has 3,200. Michael has 2,600. Aaron gets the clue. Visit San Antonio and you can see a big mosaic of the Virgin Mary shaped like one of these prayer candles. Um, He guesses what is a nativity candle, but the answer that they're looking for is a votive. Uh, Novena is the word that came to mind there for me, but that might not be acceptable i would need like somebody with more expertise in catholicism than me to tell Mm me novenas are prayers that are like i think looking at wikipedia i think often you light a candle when you say this particular kind of prayer Mm -hmm. um but i guess the candle is a votive anyway tough break but not not a huge loss and uh yeah there's still just a thousand yeah so at the end of the Jeopardy round, Aaron's in the lead with 6,600, Marissa has 3,200, Michael has 2,600, and we have the double Jeopardy categories, history, poets and poetry, chicken nuggets, Antarctica, <laughs> films of the 80s, and disinformation, dis in quotation marks. Uh, in the poets and poetry category, at the $1,600 level, a pioneer imagist, he spent 1946 to 1958 in St. Elizabeth's Psychiatric Hospital, future home of John Hinckley. Mm. That is Ezra Pound. Um, and I knew that one because a different poet, Elizabeth Bishop, I believe, wrote a poem called A Visit to St. Elizabeth's. Mm. And I sang a choral setting of that poem. Wow. Yes. It's a real slumdog millionaire kind of thing. Yeah. It's a really cool choral setting. Very, very chaotic. Do you happen to remember the... Um, Jonathan Bailey Holland. I do not know that composer, Mm -hmm. but I will check it out. Yeah, you should. Daily Double number two is the first pick of the round uh, in the films of the 80s category at the $1,600 level. Michael finds it. He's at $2,600. Well, we already got the scores. They're at the same scores that they were to start the round. He wagers everything, $2,600. 
And the clue is, its ensemble cast included William Hurt, Kevin Klein, Glenn Close, and Meg Tilly. And he gets it correct with, what is the big chill? Mm-hmm. And not a moment's hesitation there. Mm-hmm. He, he just knew it cold. I'm kind of slowly making progress with learning my explorers, but there's just so many explorers. And so it's like, there's a lot of exploration stuff to learn. So yeah, in the Antarctica category in 1773, this British captain crossed the Antarctic circle. Ice pack kept his ship from reaching the continent and Michael guessed Shackleton. Uh, Correct answer. There is cook. Aaron got it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But explorers, they just keep coming up. So we've all got to keep plugging away at that. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Daily Double number three comes up in the history category at the $800 level as the 19th pick. Aaron finds it and wagers 4,000 of his 14,200. Marissa's at 6,800 and Michael's at 9,200. So Aaron will still be in the lead if he misses. The clue is, one of Russia's foremost reformers, he was proclaimed Imperator in 1721. And he guesses who is Nicholas, but the correct response here is Peter the Great. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If you hear reformer with Russian czar, you know, leader, it's got to be Peter. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the double jeopardy round... Aaron is in the lead at 13,800, Marissa's at 9,200, and Michael is at 11,600. And they get the category Landlocked Countries. And the clue, losing its ocean access in 1993. This African Union member is the most populous landlocked nation, with 110 million people. And this ended up being a triple stumper. Marissa wagered everything, which I don't think was the ideal wager it was not uh uh, it's hardly ever the ideal wager to bet everything because if you get it wrong you are guaranteeing yourself that you cannot win Mm -hmm. and the and she guessed what is she was going for uh the democratic republic of congo uh but ended up crossing that out and going with chad uh that's incorrect michael wagered 23.99 to get above aaron if he wagered nothing and wrote, what is Nigeria? That is incorrect. Aaron uh, made a cover bet-ish with his signature $27 on the end of ninety-four twenty-seven, and also wrote, what is Nigeria? Nigeria is the most populous African country, mm-hmm. but it did not lose its coastline in 1993. And I don't think Nigeria is actually landlocked, is it? I don't think so. Yeah, and Nigeria is not uh, not landlocked anyway. It's on the uh, the west coast between Benin and Cameroon. Uh, it's got a good amount of coast. So the the mention of populace pointed them to Nigeria, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the correct response is Ethiopia, uh, when Eritrea broke away and became its own country, which mm-hmm. has been an issue ever since. Mm-hmm. Well, kind of up in well, it's still an issue, but. Uh, I think just last year, the president or prime minister of Ethiopia was awarded the peace prize for mm-hmm. uh, the work with like settling that dispute. And then there ended up being another civil war in Ethiopia. So their conflict is not over. Yeah. Interesting that Michael chose to stay above 
Marissa rather than making a bet that would cover her all in. Um, yeah. Yeah. Savvy in this case, I guess. Yeah, because Michael ended up winning. Yeah. Um, landlocked countries, I think that points toward a difficult final jeopardy. I think smart in this case, if you have to choose between wagering for a situation where the first place contestant misses, but you and the set, you and the third place get it right versus wagering for a triple stumper, maybe better to wager for a triple stumper here. Yeah. Yeah. And it was this time. Mm-hmm. And on Friday... We have the contestants Ollie Savage, an English and film studies teacher from Burbank, California, Syed Ahmed, an operations manager originally from New York, New York, and Michael Colton, a screenwriter originally from Newton, Massachusetts, whose one-day cash winnings total 9,201. And we have the Jeopardy round categories Asian history, baseball nicknames, Road trip to the same named place. Uh, give the name shared by the places where each trip starts and ends. Toys and games. Numbers. And Oriole. That is O-R-I-A-L in quotation marks. I wondered if there was a writing error in the road trip to the same named place category. Did you notice that, Kyle? No. The 400 and the 600 had the exact same wording, except for the the business end. The $400 clue was interstate stops in Cleveland and Cheyenne may await on a trek from Maine's largest city to Oregon's. Syed tried that and guessed Salem. That's not correct. Uh, Michael got it. It was Portland. Mm-hmm. And then at the $600 level... Interstate stops in Cleveland and Cheyenne may await on a trek from, and that whole part is the same as the $400 clue. Uh, And then it was from Essex County, Massachusetts to Marion County, Oregon. Maybe that was, maybe it was intentional. For this one, they were going for Salem. uh, And Michael got in with that one. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I, I just, I felt that that was intentional. And it, you know, it you might thought have it been. was intentional repetition. I sort of wondered if they'd put it in as a placeholder and intended to change it out. Or if, I guess, it, I guess you could, like, you needed to be back to back for it to be funny. Right. Because, I mean, I mean, it does, they're both on I 80. You take I 80 all the way across for that. Whole yeah. Thing. So, I mean, it's not wrong, right? Yeah. I, I've, yeah, I it's, thought it was. It's not wrong. I, I just thought it was very strange to word. The whole kind of lead up to to the important part of the clue uh, identically. Sure. I mean, to kind of go along with that, the baseball nicknames had a similar conceit mm. in the 600 $800, and $1,000 clue. 600 was, that's Mr. Cub to you. Of course, that is Ernie Banks. Uh, 800 was, that's Mr. October to you, and that's Reggie Jackson. And then the 1,000 was, that's Mr. November to you, and that's Derek Jeter. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Seemed to fit. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. It it may well have been intentional. Uh, Syed ran ran that baseball nicknames category too. Yes, he did. Very impressive. Yeah. It's nice. Nice. We're not going to have another uh, you know like sports category meme going mm-hmm. around for Jeopardy contestants. Daily double number one is in the road trip to the same name place category. It's a $1,000 level. Uh, Michael finds it. He's at 6000 
over uh, Syed's negative 600 and Ollie's 1800. Uh, it's pick number 21. The baseball nicknames category came last, so that's when Syed got him got himself out of the hole. Uh, and Michael wagered 2,000. And he got the clue, you start on Interstate 91 out of the one in Massachusetts, and you end up on I-55 to reach the one in Illinois. And he got that correct with, what is Springfield? Mm-hmm. Springfield is not close to Newton, Massachusetts, but Massachusetts isn't that big of a place. I appreciated Michael being the one to get it as mm-hmm. the uh, as the Massachusetts resident. Yeah. Y- yeah. <laughs> Looking at any of the East Coast states from where I am, it's like everything's close. Yeah, it's there's all really no, close together. There's no distance in any of those states. Mm-hmm. Granted, yeah. it still takes a long time to drive, but that's just because of people. Yep. Anyway, at the end of the Jeopardy round, uh, Michael is at 9,000. Syed has gotten himself up to 3,200, and Ali is at 2,600. And the double Jeopardy categories are opera songs, 17th century literature, medical abbreviations, around the world, large and in charge, and colorful language. And one of my favorite fictional characters came up in the large and in charge category at the $1,600 level. This giant female lepidopteran has been terrorizing Japan in monster movies since 1961. Michael guessed who is Godzilla. I believe Godzilla is canonically male, but I could be wrong about that. But lepidopteran points you to Mothra. I love Mothra. I need more Mothra in my life. I don't think I know much of anything about Mothra. I know that Mothra exists, and <laughs> I recognized enough to be able to say, oh, that moth one. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Although I couldn't quite remember the name Mothra, but maybe I should, maybe I should pay more attention uh, to Mothra. I mean, not really. I just, I don't know. I've always loved Mothra. My dad would always anytime those old Godzilla movies were on he'd always be like come here come here sit down watch this um because mm-hmm. he's a goofball like that but mm-hmm. uh yeah I was at a young age I was introduced to all of the old Godzilla movies and, and Mothra has always been a a favorite of mine mm-hmm. I bet that you enjoyed the um the opera songs category I did I did find like Anytime opera or classical music comes up as a category, I'm like, oh, I'm going to do so bad at this. Because <laughs> mm. I always, when it's something that's like so much in your wheelhouse, it, sometimes you overthink it or like it's something that you're not expecting. Uh, but I actually did fine on it. It was good. Yeah. Nice. Good. Yeah. I did not know the anvil chorus at the $2,000 level. Hmm. The clue was this chorus hammers down in the Verdi opera Il Trovatore. So... I feel like maybe I, uh, Anvil is one of the things I would have guessed just based on the clue hammers, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, but I hadn't heard of it, I think. Yeah, Il Trovatore isn't, his, isn't one of the more popular uh, Verdi operas, not like Aida or La Traviata. Mm-hmm. That opera songs category is where we find Daily Double number two uh, as the 10th pick. Ollie finds this one, 
And uh, he has 7,400 at this point uh, to Michael's 10,200 and Syed's 4,400. And he wagers 5,000. It's a solid wager. And gets the clue sung first by Clara, not by either title character. Summertime and the Livin' is Easy is in this 20th century opera. And he gets it correct with what is Porgy and Bess. I saw Audra McDonald in Porgy and Bess. Oh. She she was great. I think I feel so so so, so about the show. Mm-hmm. But she was fabulous. I'd believe that. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that puts him into a bit of a lead. Yeah. And Ollie ran that uh opera songs category. Yeah. Did did they acknowledge him running the category? Again, I, I don't remember. I don't think so. I, I'm I'm guessing that without a studio audience or because it's a guest host, either way they're not acknowledging it. because uh, we noticed the same thing with Ken, right? A yeah. week or two ago. Um I feel like Syed got acknowledgement for running the baseball nicknames category, although it could have just been the end of the round applause. But like, I, th- mm-hmm. I think the other two, I mean, he ran them top to bottom right in a row as the last five clues of the round. And so I feel like that was, it was a little sort of clearer that it had happened. Um, yeah. The opera songs category, they came a little out of order and with a daily double in the middle. And so it's easy to forget. I think that he that he's run it. It's much easier to see that someone has run the category when they just go straight down the the column. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And daily double number three is in the colorful language category at the two thousand dollar level. Sayed finds this one, so each of them found one, which is good. Um, he was in third place at eleven thousand two hundred. Michael is at thirteen thousand four hundred, and Ollie is at fifteen thousand six hundred, uh, and he wagered three thousand. It was pick number 26, so getting getting to the end of the round. The clue is the final draft of an authoritative government report is one of these for the stuff it's printed on and its color. Uh, and he gets that right with what is uh, white paper, which I've, I don't know that term. Oh, I'd heard that. To me, that's uh, <laughs> like, okay, it is white and it's printed on paper. Okay, that like the clue did not point me to white paper. It pointed me. It, it was like pointing me to something perhaps a bit more obscure or like more niche. Uh, yeah, <laughs> white paper. Got it. Okay. Yeah, I feel like I've encountered the term white paper more uh, in my like in exposure to my spouse's work. Um, he works in finance, and white papers come up in his work a lot but yeah no i can i can see how it sounds a little generic yeah i also really liked seeing um shrek 2 come <laughs> up in large and in charge shrek uh, is life. there's there's i have a real soft spot in my heart for like all of the shrek movies um mm. uh yeah the clue there was made by the muffin man mongo is the name of a huge one of these that attacks the castle at the end of shrek 2 uh, it's a gingerbread man. Michael got that one. It was the last clue of the round. We had outstanding scores at the end mm-hmm. of the double Jeopardy round. Ollie was in the lead with 18,400. Syed in second place with 14,200. 
Michael's in third place with 13,800, which is an unusual score for a third place contestant. Yeah. Um, and we have the final Jeopardy category, early U.S. history. And uh, the clue, Elbridge Gary, Charles Pinckney, and John Marshall were the diplomats in this 1797 incident that led to a quasi-war with France. Michael wagered 5,398 dollars. And he Mm. did not come up with anything. What is the question mark? Uh, That drops him down to 8,402. This is a very smart wager for him. He's looking to land just above where Ollie will land if he makes a cover bet and misses. And I would additionally say, I mean, maybe even like ending with an eight, just in case Syed tries to tries to wager small mm. uh, and go for, you know, position himself for a triple stumper, right? Like it, this could have come down to O2 versus O1, you know, right. I thought, I thought it was a very savvy wager. Syed did not try to wager for a triple stumper. He tried to wager to get the win if he and Michael got the correct answer. Right. But Ollie missed. He wrote down what is the affair. I think he tried to leave himself a little space in case he came up with what affair Mm -hmm. uh, at the last second. Um, But that's all he had. What is the affair? Um, And that's not correct. So he drops down to 700. Ollie has wagered 10,001, which is a cover bet. He guesses, what is the rum barrel fiasco? So that's not correct. Uh, they were looking for the XYZ affair. Mm-hmm. Did you get the XYZ affair, Kyle? I did. Did you? Yeah, me yeah. too. John Adams' um, presidency. Mm-hmm. I got stuck for a second. I was like, teapot, teapot. No, not teapot. Teapot. What was it? Teapot dome? Is that... Teapot Dome. Yeah, that was a good hundred years later. Yes. No, I know. I know. But it's filed in the same, it's in the same, it's in the same like file folder in my brain. Historical presidential scandals. Yeah. Historical presidential scandals, like second tier, right? Like we're Mm -hmm. not, we're not talking Watergate. Right. Uh, Talking second tier historical presidential scandals. Anyway. Ollie misses this one. It drops him to eighty three ninety nine. So with a three dollar margin, uh, Michael is the winner. Um, yes. A two day champion with seventeen thousand six hundred and three now. Um, and we'll see him again on Monday. Yep. Yep. We will. So this is the mid episode break where we remind you that we have a Patreon. Uh, we're on patreon.com slash potent potables. Um, if you want to throw us a, a few bucks a month to help us out with uh, the costs of making a podcast, we'd appreciate it. We've got some content on there. Not a whole lot of content, but we're trying to add more as we can. And uh, yeah, check that out. Check that out if you're interested. Um, we also got a new review. Uh, about, a, about a week ago from Lynn in NC. NC's presumably North Carolina. Lynn says, I enjoy listening to Emily and Kyle's weekly analysis of the episodes. Their love for Jeopardy is infectious. Thank you so much, Lynn. Oh, no. um, I swear I'm wearing a mask. 
<laughs> yeah, um, spread love for Jeopardy, not coronavirus. Wear your masks. If at all possible, yes. Yep. Thank you, Lynn. Yeah, thanks, Lynn, for the great review. Kyle, do you have deep dive guesses? Yes, I do. Are we talking about the Bloomsbury Group? We're not. Okay. Are we talking about the Hollywood 10? No, but I did consider it. Dang it. Oh, I really felt good about that one. Mm, that's uh, a good one. Okay, last I one. A, I wrote a paper in high school about the Hollywood 10. Well, it seems like it would have been a good one to do it in. Are we talking about Oscar Wilde, The Ballad of Reading Jail? No. Uh. No, we are not. Um, so I, I'm taking us in a sciencey direction. Mm. Um, I'm in the physics category from the Tuesday, February 23 game. And this was a missed daily double at the $1,600 level. Mm. The clue was around 1800, William Herschel found that this type of radiation he called radiant heat is closely related to visible light. And Sam tried what is magnetic radiation as a guess there. Um, but the correct response is infrared. So I thought I'd do um, kind of an overview of the electromagnetic spectrum, the, the types of radiation and some, some stuff about them. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> and I, I asked my spouse, who was a, a, a physics major, um, did a good amount of physics research also, what I should cover. And he, he said, make sure and mention wave-particle duality. So here I am. Mentioning wave particle duality. duality. It's been mentioned. Uh, yep. <laughs> uh, light acts like a wave and it acts like a particle. Uh, it It's it's both. It's a paradox. I, I don't think Einstein understood it, so I certainly don't and can't explain it on a podcast. But there you go. Wave particle duality. Light acts like particles and also like waves. Got it. Yeah. Okay. So electromagnetic radiation acts like waves, as well as particles. Um, it has wavelength. Wavelength is measured in meters um, and in equations and stuff. You signify that with a lambda. And frequency uh, measured in hertz. I think you talked about that mm-hmm. in your SI units deep dive. Um, and in, in equations, that is uh, signified with an F. And the wavelength and frequency are mechanically related. Of course, short wavelength means high frequency and Vice versa, long wavelength, low frequency. So you can talk about electromagnetic radiation either in its frequency or in its its wavelength, and like you know, one they they correspond. Uh, it's a spectrum, so the categories kind of bleed into each other, right? There's not a sharp dividing line between one category and the next. Between gamma rays and X rays, they kind of like like the rainbow colors. They you know, sort of that they blend from one to another. And uh, going from short wavelength to long wavelength, um, you can kind of, I thought about doing this from long to short, from short to long, or based on like chronologically in terms of discovery. Um, And I started, I decided to start with short for no particular reason. Um, (laughs) So from short to long, gamma rays, x-rays, ultraviolet, the visible light spectrum, infrared, microwave radiation, radio wave radiation, gamma rays, x-rays, and high frequency, or yeah, high frequency, ultraviolet, 
are classified as ionizing radiation um, because their photons have enough energy to ionize atoms causing chemical reactions. So gamma rays, x-rays, and high high frequency ultraviolet are ionizing radiation. So let's go into gamma rays. Gamma rays were discovered by Paul Ulrich Villard in 1900 um, while he was studying radiation emitted by radium. Um, And they were named gamma rays by Ernest Rutherford. He uh, had already named alpha rays and beta rays. Beta rays are stronger than alpha rays. And then they discovered gamma rays, which are stronger than beta rays. And so alpha, beta, gamma is the next letter in the Greek alphabet. That's how they got their name. Uh, Gamma rays arise from radioactive decay of atomic nuclei. Um, There is no lower limit to their wavelength. Um, They are on the order of uh, picometers and below. They're particularly relevant in astronomy um, for studying high energy objects or regions. Um, This can only be done with telescopes outside the Earth's atmosphere, uh, though, because uh, they don't pass through our atmosphere. You have to have an instrument outside the atmosphere to, um, to measure them. Gamma rays are used experimentally by physicists for their, uh, their penetrating ability. They're produced by a number of radioisotopes. They are used for irradiation of foods and seeds for sterilization. Um, in medicine, they're occasionally used in radiation cancer therapy. They're used for diagnostic imaging in nuclear medicine, um, in PET scans, for example. And uh, the wavelength of gamma rays can be measured with high accuracy through Compton scattering, which was more complicated than I could really <laughs> grasp or cover here. Sure. <laughs> but but Compton scattering, that's uh, we can we can learn the phrase Compton scattering and that it has to do with gamma rays that that we can do today. Um, yeah, so that's gamma rays. And uh, next up, with slightly longer wavelengths, we have x-rays. We've talked about this on the podcast many times, um, but x-rays were discovered by uh, German physics professor Wilhelm Röntgen uh, in 1895. Um, He stumbled on x-rays while experimenting with Leonard tubes. and began studying x-rays. He wrote an initial report on a new kind of ray, a preliminary communication, and uh, submitted it to a journal. Um, uh, He referred to this radiation as X to indicate that it was an unknown type of radiation. It was, he was using X like you would use a variable, um, but the name stuck. They are x-rays to this day. He received the first Nobel prize in physics for his discovery. X-rays are classified as hard X-rays with shorter wavelengths and soft X-rays with longer wavelengths. X-rays are on the order of like picometers to nanometers. Uh, they're used for diagnostic imaging in medicine. Like that's a that's a sort of well-known, obvious use in astronomy. The accretion disks around neutron stars and black holes emit X-rays, uh, enabling studies of those phenomena. They're emitted also by stellar corona um, and some te- types of nebulae. And like gamma rays, X-ray telescopes have to be placed outside the Earth's atmosphere um, because uh, the Earth's atmosphere is opaque to X-rays. With longer wavelengths than X-rays, we have ultraviolet. 
radiation. It's on the order of 10 to 400 nanometers. And the the end of that is sort of where you start to be able to see violet light in the visible light spectrum. Um, UV radiation was discovered in 1801 uh, when the German physicist uh, Johann Wilhelm Ritter observed that invisible rays just beyond the violet end of the visible spectrum darkened silver chloride soaked paper more quickly than violet light itself. Uh, He called them deoxidizing rays uh, to emphasize chemical reactivity and to distinguish them from heat rays, uh, which we'll be talking about in a minute on the other end of the visible light spectrum. Uh, The simpler term chemical rays was adopted soon afterwards and remained popular throughout the 19th century. Although some people thought that this was an entirely different kind of radiation from light. Eventually the terms chemical rays and heat rays were dropped in favor of ultraviolet and infrared respectively. Some children can see ultraviolet light. Uh, (laughs) What? (laughs) Yeah. Like, you know how, um, Children start with uh, mm-hmm. being able to hear a huge, a, yeah. a larger range of sound. And then like, oh, this is, it's fascinating and depressing. You can, um, everybody like pause the podcast and Google, I think like age hearing test or something. And you'll get a thing where you can like push a button and hear like an ascending frequency pitch. And you tap when you can't hear it anymore. And it tells you like what... Uh, what your hearing age is. Um, mine is five years older than my actual age, although I haven't operated any heavy machinery or gone to a whole lot of concerts. So um, anyway, yeah, so so some children can see ultraviolet light and some young adults, but by adulthood, your, your, your vision is pretty much aligned with what we consider the visible light spectrum. They can't see like the like all of what we classify as ultraviolet light, but uh, down to wavelengths around three hundred and ten nanometers. Near UV radiation is also visible to some insects, mammals, and birds. Um, small birds have a fourth color receptor for ultraviolet rays. We have like the three color receptors. Mm. Um, so birds have true UV vision. They have a specific receptor for that. Ultraviolet radiation is present in sunlight, I'm sure you know. Um, It constitutes about 10% of the total electromagnetic radiation output from the sun. If you've ever heard of something called the Lyman Alpha line, that's in the UV UV spectrum. Um, It's in the UV spectrum, even if you haven't. Um, So this is an astronomy thing. Um, (laughs) uh, So uh, spectroscopy is used in astronomy to uh, learn more about celestial bodies. Um, I think you maybe touched on this a little bit when you were talking about stars. Did you talk about spectroscopy at all? I can't remember. Uh, a tiny bit, tiny bit, talking about how they're classified sometimes by spectral analysis. Yeah. I took uh, astrophysics as one of my distribution requirements in college um, and uh, really enjoyed it and got to got to play with the uh, play with the instruments and like look at the like the spectra spectrometer spectroscope i can't remember what all the instruments are called but mm. got to like look at the look at the spectrum and um so yeah you uh you spread out the spectrum that you're getting from the sun or a star or whatever you it is you're looking at and there's a lot of information you can get from that um about composition about how it's moving relative to you 
Um, so the Lyman Alpha line is an emission line. There are emission and absorption lines. Um, uh, emission line is a bright line in the spectrum. An absorption line is a dark line in the spectrum. Um, and those lines happen because of electrons ascending into higher orbitals or falling into lower orbitals. Um, they emit light when they when they drop down. They um, absorb light and and uh, jump up. Um, so the the Lyman alpha line is an especially like prominent and important one characteristic of hydrogen. Um, I feel like I'm <laughs> disappointing last week's guest, Rachel Paternoballer, who is a <laughs> legit astrophysicist and is probably like holding her head in despair oh as oh I explain God. these things. <laughs> Sorry, Rachel. Uh, so yeah, the Lyman alpha line is in the is in the UV spectrum. Um, UV rays can be classified in a few different ways. Um, you might know UVA and UVB from like buying sunscreen. Um, there's also UVC, which the sun does emit, but it's absorbed by the ozone layer and the atmosphere. UVA and UVB can be harmful and contribute to skin cancer. I'm sure you know. Um, UVB is associated more with burning, UVA more with aging. That's a fun mnemonic, A for aging, B for burning. And uh, But UV also... Like we need, we need some amount of UV radiation, and uh, and we use UV light for a bunch of practical things: um, novelty black lights, uh, tanning lamps. Which whether we actually need those is a question. Um, reptile keeping, uh, detecting counterfeit money, bodily fluids, um, curing gel manicures. Um, there's a there's a bunch of things that we use UV lights for. And that brings us to visible light. Um, UV light is past the purple, so now we're in the visible portion of the spectrum um, with wavelengths from 380 nanometers to 760 nanometers. Um, and it's, by definition, it is detected by the human eye and perceived as visible light. Roger Bacon theorized in the 13th century that rainbows were produced by a similar process to the passage of light through glass or crystal. Um, so that's kind of where where we start seeing um, a somewhat accurate theory of what's going on with, with visible light. Um, in the 17th century, Isaac Newton discovered that prisms could disassemble and reassemble white light and described the phenomenon in his book, Optics. Uh, he was the first to use the word spectrum, which is Latin for appearance or apparition in that sense, um, in print in 1671. Um, he observed that when a narrow beam of sunlight strikes the face of a glass prism at an angle, some is reflected and some of the beam passes into and through the glass, emerging as different colored bands. He hypothesized light to be made up of corpuscles, uh, particles of different colors with the different colors of light moving at different speeds in transparent matter, red light moving more quickly than violet in glass. So that's that's not quite right. Um, but in any case, the result is that red light is bent less sharply than violet as it passes through the prism. Newton originally divided the spectrum into six named colors, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, and violet. Uh, later, he added indigo as a seventh color because he believed that seven was a perfect number, drawing a connection to um, musical notes, the known objects in the solar system, and the days of the week. 
thought seven was better than six, so we better get indigo in there. <laughs> and uh, while we're talking about the visible light uh, spectrum, this is a good time to talk about redshift and blueshift. Doppler effect, you probably know, is the change in frequency of a wave in relation to an observer uh, who is moving relative to the wave source. Uh, it's named after the Austrian physicist Christian Doppler, um, who described the phenomenon in 1842. Um, and you probably know the Doppler effect best um, from things like the change in pitch um, when a vehicle sounding a horn approaches and then passes you, right? So you hear mm -hmm. it at a higher pitch, and then as it passes, it drops to a lower pitch. So the reason for that is that when the source of the waves is moving toward you, the observer, each successive wave crest is emitted from a position closer than the previous one. And so in effect, the waves are like bunching up as the vehicle comes toward you. And then as the vehicle travels away from you after passing, that motion is like stretching the waves out. So it happens with sound. Um, it also happens with light. Doppler correctly predicted that the phenomenon should apply to all waves and in particular suggested that the varying colors of stars could be attributed to their motion with respect to the Earth. Um, before this was verified, it was found that stellar colors were primarily due to a star's temperature, not its motion. But later, Doppler was vindicated to some extent because we, we do see the colors of stars being impacted by their motion relative to us. Uh, the Doppler redshift was uh, described by French physicist Fizeau in 1848, who found that uh, the spectral lines uh, were shifted. We talked about spectral lines a minute ago due to the Dop Doppler effect in, in stars he was examining. And this was called redshift for the first time in 1908, quite a bit later. Uh, so there's redshift and blue shift. Redshift is stars that are moving away from us or light sources that are that are moving away relative to us. Um, so moving toward the longer wavelength red end of the spectrum. Blue shift is light sources that are moving toward us. And that shortens the wavelengths and moves it, moves it toward the blue end of the spectrum. The spectrum does not contain all the colors that the human visual system can distinguish. Unsaturated colors, such as pink and uh, purple variations like magenta, for example, are absent because um, they can only be made from a mix of multiple wavelengths. Um, colors that contain only one wavelength are called pure colors or spectral colors. Um, so that's the, that's the visible light spectrum. And now we come to infrared. Infrared has wavelengths longer than those of visible light. It is uh, not visible to the human eye, but we experience it as heat. It's generally understood to encompass wavelengths from uh, the red edge of the visible spectrum around 700 to like one millimeter or thereabouts. Um, it is absorbed and emitted by the rotations and vibrations of chemically bonded atoms or groups of atoms. That is to say, everything that is above absolute zero is emitting infrared radiation. Um, so like, even like, you know, an ice cube or whatever, like, does emit infrared radiation. Um, it is it is the motion of, of atoms. 
It was discovered um, as the Jeopardy clue told us uh, in 1800 by astronomer William Herschel. He was uh, doing an experiment to measure the difference in temperature between the colors in the visible spectrum. Um, and he placed thermometers in the path of light within each color of the visible spectrum. Um, and he observed an increase in the temperature from blue to red. Um, but he got an even warmer temperature measurement just beyond where the red end of the spectrum he was measuring was. And he was surprised at this result. He called them calorific rays. And eventually they got that name heat rays. The shorter near-infrared rays, uh, which are closer to visible light on the electromagnetic spectrum, um, don't have heat that's especially detectable to us. Um, they are used by like remote controls, like TV remote controls to change channels and, and that kind of thing. Um, and then the longer far infrared waves uh, closer to the microwave section are the, are the ones that we feel as heat. Infrared is used in uh, industrial, scientific, military, commercial, and medical applications. Night vision devices uh, rely on near-infrared uh, infrared astronomy uses sensor-equipped telescopes uh, to penetrate dusty regions of space, to uh, examine objects like molecular clouds, um, detect planets, um, to view highly redshifted objects. Infrared thermal imaging cameras are used to detect heat loss in insulated systems, to observe changing blood flow in the skin, and to detect overheating of electrical apparatuses. And there are military applications also target acquisition surveillance night vision and uh, humans at normal body temperature radiate around the uh 10 micrometer wavelength mm -hmm. uh, so that's infrared microwaves are uh, longer wavelengths than infrared from like millimeters up to like a meter or so is what i found Wow. Yeah. Uh, frequencies around like 300 megahertz to 300 gigahertz or so. They were first generated in the 1890s in some of the earliest radio experiments by physicists who thought of them as a form of invisible light. Indian physicist uh, Jagadish Chandra Bose um, performed the first experiments with microwaves. Who is the first person to produce millimeter waves uh, generating frequencies up to 60 gigahertz? And the prefix micro in microwave uh, is not meant to suggest micrometer wavelengths. It's because microwaves are small relative to the radio waves that scientists were studying when they uh, identified and generated microwaves. Microwaves travel by line of sight. Um, they do not diffract around hills. So uh, terrestrial microwave communication links are limited by uh, the visual horizon to about 40 miles. They're widely used in modern technology, um, in wireless networks, radar, satellite, and spacecraft communication. Um, there are medical applications uh, oh, they're used in garage door openers and keyless entry systems. And, um, of course, uh, for cooking food in microwave ovens. And uh, last one here, we have got radio waves. Uh, longer than microwaves overlapping with microwaves, uh, ranging up to thousands of kilometers. Um, 
first predicted by mathematical work done in 1867 by Scottish mathematical physicist James Clerk Maxwell. Um, his mathematical theory, now called Maxwell's Equations, predicted that a coupled electric and magnetic field could travel through space as an electromagnetic wave. And then in 1887, Hertz uh, demonstrated the reality of Maxwell's electromagnetic waves by generating radio waves in his laboratory, showing that they exhibited the same wave properties as light. And uh, Marconi, um, these are all kind of familiar names, developed the first practical radio transmitters and receivers around 1894, 1895, received the 1909 Nobel Prize in Physics for his radio work. Radio communication began to use, be used commercially around 1900. The modern term radio wave replaced the original name Hertzian wave around 1912. Um, radio waves are very widely used to transmit information across distances in radio communication systems, including radio broadcasting, television, two-way radios, mobile phones, communication satellites, wireless networking, and to prevent interference between different users, the generation and transmission of radio waves is very strictly regulated uh, by national laws coordinated by an international body, the International Telecommunication Union. So that's radio waves. Hmm. And that is the electromagnetic spectrum. Yes, it is. Yeah. I... This, this was fun because I hadn't really thought about it a lot since uh, since that college class, but I really sure. did enjoy that college class. Yeah, and it's good to, like, we know all of these terms, we just probably don't uh, have them in, in order and in context, so that's yeah. good. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, all right, are you ready for a quiz? Lay it on me. All right, we had, there was, we have six questions in a normal quiz, um, and we had seven types of electromagnetic radiation. So I uh, I chose between microwaves and radio waves, um, but we've got we, I had to I had to leave one out. So so we're going to uh, we're going to go through from from gamma rays on through microwaves. Um, question 1. I think this is the easy one. Um, Spider-Man got his powers from a radioactive spider and Thor got his from you know, being Thor, um, which Marvel Cinematic Universe character's origin traces back to experimentation with gamma radiation? Uh, that is Bruce Banner, the Incredible That's Hulk. Right. Yes. Um, and he actually came up in Jeopardy this week. I had forgotten. I was like Googling around like gamma rays, pop culture, and I was like, oh, great, the Hulk. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I had to specify Marvel Cinematic Universe to pin this and i hope that it's pinned it may not be pinned um but if you're if you're in the wider marvel comics world franchise world um there are numerous other gamma ray origin stories um heroes Mm -hmm. and villains um she hulk and a bunch of bunch of things very nice 10 points all right question number two the invention of X-ray technology greatly improved the early diagnosis of what disease, which in the 1800s was responsible for nearly 25% of all deaths in Europe. Some notable victims of this disease include Emily Bronte, John Keats, and Frederick Chopin. Uh, pretty... I mean, there's something that comes to mind. I might be wrong, but I'm, I'm going to say... 
the consumption. Yes. The t- the it, TB. It is. It's TB tuberculosis consumption. Um, lung X-rays allowed diagnosis of TB significantly earlier. Um, where you could uh, you could see early signs of lung damage. Um, prior to that, TB had to be diagnosed by listening to chest sounds, um, and it had to progress a lot further before it could be found. It's debatable whether early diagnosis actually did very much to help, since the treatment was sending people to sanatoriums, um, mm-hmm. uh, which didn't have significantly lower death rates than just keeping them at home, although there may have been some kind of quarantine effect, right? If you get more people with an infectious disease into facilities maybe maybe you're limiting the spread of tb uh, possibly yeah but it did certainly help with uh with diagnosing earlier um it would take until you know effective antibiotic treatment before uh but before a lot of things went right (laughs) yeah before a lot of things all right um so you're at 20 points here's question three in 2020 it was classic blue in 2019 it was living coral and in 2018 it was ultraviolet although by definition it can't really be ultraviolet what zeitgeisty selection am i describing zeitgeisty selection classic blue this is the ultraviolet question because in 2018 it was ultraviolet. Yeah. I don't even know where to begin with this. Uh, yeah. Um, I truly don't know. So I'm going to say uh, frozen yogurt flavor of the year. <laughs> we are talking about Pantone color of the year. So, I still don't uh, know what that is. Yeah. What does Pantone actually do? Names color Are of they... the year, apparently. Yeah. Annually, Pantone hosts in a European capital a secret meeting of representatives from various nations' color standards groups. And after two days of presentations and debates, they choose a color for the following year. And then there's a bunch of, like articles about it it's important for people who are in like fashion and interior design and event planning and those kinds of things um they try to uh make a connection between the color of the year and what they perceive as the zeitgeist yeah pantone mm-hmm. color of the year okay it's a thing uh and the 2021 color of the year they actually chose two colors ultimate gray illuminating which is a yellow color Hmm. uh yeah they've been choosing the color of the year since 2000 okay yeah all right so you are at 20 and question four i'm not gonna sing it uh we have some lyrics i went to the doctor i went to the mountains i looked to the children i drank from the fountains There's more than one answer to these questions pointing me in a crooked line, and the less I seek my source for some definitive, closer I am to fine. Those are lyrics from arguably the best-known song from the 1989 eponymous album of what band with a colorful name? So bad at this. Do you want a hint? I mean, 
Yeah, I th- I know the song. Like, I recognize the lyrics, but I don't know the band. It's one of those, uh, it's one of those seven colors that Newton identified as the seven colors. I mean, then my, my guess would be indigo. Indigo goes. Indigo. Indigo. I don't know. (laughs) You're so close! Uh, I don't think I can give it to you. It's Indigo Girls. Indigo Girls, no. The Indigo Girls, yeah. Um, I know those lyrics, though. Yeah. Yeah. But I I would never have gotten there. I just now learned that that was a band. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Kind of a folksy um, duo. Two women. Um, I'm trying to remember their names. Embarrassing myself now by... I'm, I'm certainly embarrassing somebody who's listening by not being able to name both Indigo Girls. You off don't the top remember of my that head. they are Amy Ray and Emily Salyers? Mm. Right, there we go. Um, all right. <laughs> Who met in elementary school and brigade began performing together as high school students in Decatur, Georgia, of a part of the greater Atlanta metropolitan area. Who doesn't you know You just that? learned that from the internet right now. <laughs> what are you talking about? I've known that all along. <laughs> all right. Question number five. Infrared reflectography is used by art experts to examine the layers underneath paintings. What artist has been found to have painted woman ironing and the blue room over previous existing paintings, one uh, of a man in a bow tie, one of a mustached man. Experts suspect he may have painted over previous work because of the high cost of new canvases. Maybe being low on cash contributed to his blue period. That would be Pablo Picasso. Indeed, that is Pablo Picasso. Very nice. Uh, Oh, well. All right. Nice. Uh, yeah, the, the Blue Room is um, early Picasso Blue period. So you're at 30 points. And um, for the final category, let's call it American Inventions. American Inventions. I mean, I am American, and I've used inventions, so I'm going to wager 25. Okay. I think that's wise. So here's your clue. Working on radar technology at Raytheon, physicist Percy Spencer realized that the candy bar in his pocket had melted, leading to the invention of what technology, which became commercially available in 1947? I mean, is it the obvious answer? It's the obvious answer. Is it a refrigerator? Oh, it's not a refrigerator. Oh, oh no. No, it is a microwave oven. Oh. The, yeah. They, he was working with microwaves for their application oh, in oh, radar. Oh, and it um, melted the... Po- the, the okay. Yeah, the microwaves melted the candy bar in his pocket, and he realized that they were produce it like heating creating heat food, somehow. creating heat yeah. somehow um okay. yeah and uh he uh he he invented the microwave oven um the first microwave oven uh on the market was about six feet tall it weighed 
750 pounds. It needed a water hookup to cool the apparatus. Um, And it cost $5,000 in Mm. 1947, the equivalent of $53,000 or so uh, today. Um, It may be more than that. How much do you need your Hot Pockets? (laughs) How much is it worth to you? What would you even do with a microwave in 1947? I mean, I think they figured out pretty quickly that you could make popcorn faster. Um, You could microwave a whole person. Yeah, so that's how the microwave oven came to be. All right. Well, you win some, you lose some. Uh, Mm -hmm. You're finishing with five points. I feel like microwave oven was like even a little bit too obvious. But yeah, nice job. Thanks. Yeah, and thank you for potting with me, as always. Of course. And thanks, listeners, for spending your time with us. Such a delight to share Jeopardy with you. Uh, Thanks for bearing with me through the electromagnetic spectrum. I hope that you enjoyed it and learned something. Uh, Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Um, Leave a review or a rating if you would be so kind. Um, Maybe we'll read it at the mid-episode break. If you're interested in checking out our Patreon, you can find it at patreon.com slash And even if you're not, you can tell your friends about our podcast. That's right. They can find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com. And our website is potentpod.com. We'll be back with you next week with another week of Jeopardy. And until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. Mm-hmm.